0: Well, Jesus is indeed the Son of God who reigns forever. Please allow me to add my welcome to everyone's uh, this morning. This morning, it's the evening, and um, just delighted, especially if uh, you're new or visiting for the first time, that um, that you get to be with us this evening. Well, tonight, we are going to um, turn to Mark chapter eleven starting in verse 27, which is on page 848 of the church Bibles. Mark 11, 27. And we will be looking through chapter 12, verse 12. This is what the word says. And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him, and they said to him, By what authority are you doing these things, or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. Answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people, for they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, We do not know. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again he sent to them another servant and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully and he sent another and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed, He he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do is the word of God. Father, as we come to you tonight, we ask that you would open our eyes to see wonderful things from your word. That you would incline our hearts to your testimonies. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to talk tonight a little bit about Rejection, wounds inflicted by rejection cut deep and often heal very slow. Even light rejection smarts, doesn't it? Stuff like getting turned away from a job or getting passed over uh, from a promotion or not getting into the university that you wanted to get into. When I was in, uh, in undergrad, my friends and I, Uh, could walk the inner streets of Chicago, uh, the the streets of inner city Chicago, downtown Chicago. My school was right, situated right downtown. And we could walk the streets after midnight without a care in the world. We were men. We were were hitting the streets. You better believe it. There was a 24-hour McDonald's downtown. um, And we would just, you know, 1 o'clock in the morning, 2 o'clock in the morning without a care in the world. But... The moment that we sat by a telephone to ring up a girl to ask her out on a date, we were paralyzed. That fear of that simple little no rejection froze us in our tracks. But not all rejection is small, is it? A child put up for adoption, a broken engagement, a deep betrayal, maybe a divorce of a parent or a divorce of a spouse. A child who disowns you? Some of the deepest wounds can come from the message, I don't want you. For Jesus, this had been a long time coming. You see, in the highlands and lowlands of Galilee, he had traveled from synagogue to synagogue, over the plains and across the sea, teaching and feeding, healing and restoring, cleansing and calling for repentance. From the beginning, since his teaching in the synagogue in Mark chapter 1, the people had marveled at his teachings. We're told that this is because that he taught as one who had authority and not as one of the scribes. And by and large, this was the response of most who heard him, this marveling that happened, perhaps most of all from his disciples. And after he's traveling around in Galilee and he gets to the northernmost part of his journey, He begins to turn south and right at that moment right after Jesus confesses sorry right after Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ here we find in chapter 8 verse 31 of Mark that he began to teach them that it is necessary for the son of man to suffer many things and to be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and to be put to death and in three days to rise. This moment had been a long time coming. He travels south, arriving in Capernaum, back by the Sea of Galilee again in chapter nine. In chapter 10, he moves from the northern region of Galilee to the southern region of, region of Judah, and is down at, uh, on the other side of the Jordan, the lowest point before getting and ascending the mountain uh, to Jerusalem, up and up Mount Zion. Two weeks ago, we heard about the parade that welcomed him with the words of Psalm 118. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He walks into the temple and turns around and walks out. And the next day, as we saw just last week, he walks back into the temple. And using the same language that describes what Jesus did to the demons across the regions of the north, he casts out those who are profaning his sacred temple. And he begins to teach that the temple was to be a house of prayer. And we're told in verse 18 that the high priests and the scribes heard it and they were seeking how they might destroy him. For they feared him for all the crowd marveled at his teaching. From the crowd marveling in the first synagogue in chapter 1 to the great temple in Jerusalem. The response was the same, the people marveled at his teaching, but not the high priests, not the scribes, not the elders, this moment was a long time coming. The setting is the temple in Jerusalem, Herod had begun a building project to renovate Zerubbabel's temple. It was so large that he needed to build a retaining wall for it and the space inside the retaining wall was 33 and a half acres. 33 and a half acres for if you're more familiar with the metric system that's 13 and a half hectares. If you've ever been up to the Overgate shopping center in Dundee, both floors, two stories I believe, both floors combined form The equivalent of nine and a half acres. So we're talking a space three times the size of the two floors on one surface level of the Temple Mount. To get closer to 33 and a half acres, um, if you started over here down by the Cathedral on South Street and you walked up South Street to the Arch and you take a right to get to North Street and you get to North Street and you turn right again and hit all the way back down to the Cathedral That's about the size of the space that we're talking. That's just a little bit over the 33 acres. There still are stones from the retaining wall of Herod's temple in Jerusalem. They average about 15 feet across and 4 feet high, some weighing up to 70 tons or 63,000 kilograms. Construction was started in 20 B.C. and wouldn't be fully finished until A.D. 64. This was not your seaside Galilean synagogue. And the words of Dorothy, we're not in Kansas anymore, Toto. And let's remember together that the day before, he had just thrown out the money changers from the temple. He had cleared the temple courts, some 30 acres of these money changers, this itinerant preacher, this rabbi with a traveling school, an outsider who had just violently expelled a money-making machine from a government building with a government stamp of approval. And you say, how can that be? Well, in Jesus' day, there were two levels of government. You had the Roman government, and the Roman government, and a Jewish one that operated under the Roman government. And the Romans allowed the Jews to govern themselves up to a point. They had a special currency for the temple taxes that, that the Romans wouldn't interfere with. And they had court systems set up. So in this time period, right, it, not all the Jews are in Jerusalem. They're spread out across the world. Some are in Galilee. Some are across in, uh, in, in other parts of Europe, like um, Saul, who was from Tarsus, for example. And there they would have synagogues to gather to worship, And in each synagogue, you would have seven elders. And the seven elders formed a Sanhedrin or a council where people could come with complaints about the Jewish law. And the Romans allowed the the Jewish people to govern themselves by the Jewish law, by this court system. Except in Jerusalem, there were not seven elders, there were 70 elders. That's the supreme court, if you were, the high Sanhedrin, with the high priest presiding over the Sanhedrin now this high priest was no longer descended from Aaron like God had told Moses but rather the Romans would pick somebody and put them in the place and when it suited their purposes remove that person again so no longer were they there for life which is why we have the mention of the high priests plural because someone who had been deposed from the high priesthood would still be around and may still have some levels of prestige and influence kind of like an ex-prime minister The scribes were experts in the law, at least they were supposed to be, but they had lost credibility before the people. So these are the characters we find approaching Jesus here in the temple, where, humanly speaking, the only thing keeping them from arresting him, right then and there, is their fear of the crowds who think he's a prophet. So let's turn again to our passage in verse 27. They came again to Jerusalem, and as he's walking in the temple... The the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him. And they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. What was it that the rulers were doing? Given what we've been told about them so far, about their plans to, you know, destroy him, I think it's safe to say that they're not on a fact-finding mission. This isn't a, hey, let's, let's, let's exchange uh, some background stories and ask some questions over, over tea and biscuits after church on a Sunday morning sort of moment. This wasn't actually a question. It was a tacit rejection. The rulers of the people wanted nothing to do with Jesus. And we're not told until later what their motives were. But Mark will write in chapter 15 that Pilate perceived that the chief priests... Delivered Jesus out of envy. And as you look at the text here, what do you think they're hoping Jesus to say? What do you think that they, that they hope Jesus will do to their question, in, in response to their question? You see, they think that they've placed Jesus between a rock and a hard place. If he says anything other, if he answers anything other than my authority comes from God, he has completely invalidated his ministry before the people. But if you say that he does get his authority from God, well now there's grounds to drag him off to court on the charges of blasphemy. So Jesus, what is it going to be? Who gives you the right to do these things? Who do you think you are? And Mark told us, didn't he? In the first 12 words... The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. In Mark 1, Jesus is contrasted as different than the scribes because he taught with authority. In Mark 2, some of the scribes were there when the hole was cut in the roof and the paralytic was lowered down. And Jesus, seeing their faith, forgives the man's sins. And in the back were some scribes from Jerusalem, right? And Remember what they were doing. They're grumbling in their hearts that how can this preacher, teacher forgive sins. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus knowing what was in their heart says to them so that you know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he turns to the paralytic and says rise and take up your bed and walk. In chapter 3 some scribes from Jerusalem somehow got it in their mind that he was casting out demons because he was possessed by a stronger demon. <laughs> He's possessed by Beelzebub, they say, by the prince of demons he casts out demons. But look at how Jesus' response. Look at how Jesus responds here in, uh, in 29. I will ask you one question answer me, and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. And what Jesus is asking has the same implications as what these rulers asked him. If they say that John was sent from God, what would that imply? So he's two choices. Is, John's, is the baptism of John from God or from man? It's the same sort of question. Where did John get his authority? And if they answer that he gets his authority from God, well, what would that imply? What would that imply if they admit that John's baptism comes from God? They had snubbed John. They dismissed him in his message, refused to come for repentance. And John had proclaimed that the one who came after him would be greater than he. If John's baptism comes from God, then not only have these rulers thumbed their nose at God himself, but they would also be acknowledging that Jesus really is who John says he is. And they couldn't risk that. You know, they might lose face, lose a little bit of credibility in front of everyone. But what would happen if they rejected John? And it's really interesting here that you don't get this very much in uh, in New Testament writings. Where they just kind of trail off in their sentence. If we shall, but shall we say in verse 32, look at this. Shall we say from man? They were afraid of the people. If they reject John, they would face rejection from the crowd. And they couldn't risk that. That could have all sorts of implications. It could be that in rejecting John, the crowd could riot. It could be that when the crowd riots, the Romans come in and snuff the rioters and then remove the leaders because they couldn't control their own people. So, here they are threatening to, at the very least, at the very least, the threat is to lose face in front of the crowd, either because they admit that, yes, John's baptism was from God, but we didn't accept it, and neither do have we been accepting this itinerant prophet, or we could say, John's baptism is not from God, and the people will go nuts. And either way, we lose our influence in our positions. Their existential need for validation from the crowds crippled them, and Jesus tactfully had turned it against them. While Jesus didn't answer them directly, he responds quite clearly in this brief parable that he uh, continues on here, and he models his parable after the one told in Isaiah 5. Yes, I say that as an American, Isaiah, rather than the proper way to pronounce it, Isaiah. Um, but such, so it is, uh, Isaiah chapter 5. So if you briefly just turn with me, Isaiah 5 is on page 569 of the church Bibles. And I want to um, I want to just look at this and point out a couple things briefly, and then we'll see together where Jesus departs from how he models his parable after Isaiah 5. Isaiah 5 this is a little short little short little story told from verses 1 through verse 7 Let me sing for my beloved this is an oracle that God has delivered to Isaiah Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard My beloved had a vineyard On a very fertile hill, he dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes. Seems reasonable enough. You do all the work, you plant the choicest vines, and then the rains come, the sun shines, and you look for it to yield grapes. But the end of verse 2 says it yielded wild grapes. Or maybe thorns. We're not entirely sure what it is, but it certainly is the opposite of grapes. And now, O inhabitants, verse 3 of Jerusalem, and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? I looked for it to yield grapes. Why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I do what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I'll break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up and I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. He looked for justice But behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. A couple things to note before we turn back to Mark. Here, God is the one who plants and prepares the vineyards. He looks to it to yield fruit, and it yields something else. The absence of fruit leaves the vineyard completely useless And he unmakes the vineyard. He plows it up. He takes down the tower. He removes the hedges. He looked for righteousness. He looked for justice. There was bloodshed. He looked for righteousness. There was an outcry. This is a terrible prediction of the judgment that awaited the people who had abandoned the covenant with God in the Old Testament. In Mark, turn back with me to Mark 12. In Mark, Jesus' Jesus' parable sums up the first sentence of the two verses in Isaiah, Isaiah uh, 1 and 2, are summed up right away. A man be planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. And here he departs from the story in Isaiah 5. Rather than looking for the vineyard to yield fruit, he leased it to some tenants and he went into another country. But he still wants the fruit. Look at verse 2. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit from the vineyard. And they took him, and they beat him, and they sent him away empty-handed. The master now sends messengers. He puts tenants in charge of the vineyard, and now he sends messengers. The reader who's familiar with his Old Testament will immediately recall the time of the prophets. In the rule of David's grandson, a civil war had split the kingdom. Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And most of the kings that reigned over those kingdoms um, were wicked kings. And God sent prophet after prophet calling the kingdoms to repent. Come back to God. Remember the covenant. Don't forsake your maker. And time after time, the prophets are beaten They're stoned, they're imprisoned simply for delivering the message that God had given to them. And finally, in Jeremiah 35, 15, we find this. God says, I have sent to you all my servants, the prophets, sending them persistently saying, turn now every one of you from his evil way and amend your deeds and do not go after other gods to serve them. And then you shall dwell in the land that I gave you and your fathers, but you did not incline your ear or listen to me one servant is beaten, the next is killed, again and again. And at the end, after all the serpents, Jesus says that the man still had yet one. There remained yet one. Verse 6. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, they will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And I wonder here if maybe the logic is intentionally ridiculous. Commentators try to make sense of this. How come the tenants, what kind of laws out there might exist that if the tenants just hold on to it and kill the heir, that they all of a sudden become the heirs of? of a leased property I think the logic is intentionally ridiculous to show how ridiculous the thinking of the rulers of the people were at this point (laughs) let's let's kill the heir and then when the owner dies like we'll just get it it'll be ours it'll be great and we can sit here and eat all of our grapes (laughs) what will the owner of the vineyard do Verse 8, they took him and they killed him and they threw him out of the vineyard. Verse 9, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and he will destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. And notice how Jesus communicates two things with this parable. One, Jesus is indeed sent from the Father. He had yet one other, a beloved son. And Jesus is sent as the final messenger calling for the fruit. And B, he is the final messenger. This is the last warning. This is the last straw. He had yet one. He sent him at last, at the very end. They were plotting to destroy Jesus. And in this parable, Jesus reveals that in their very rejection of him, the owner of the vineyard will come and destroy the tenants. Completely inverting the intentions and the schemes of the rulers of the people, they, in trying to rid themselves of Jesus, have sealed their fate. And the rejection of the sun by Israel strikes me as one of those events that would have occasioned silence in heaven. There is an argument here to be made from the lesser to the greater. If the slaying of the prophets was so unthinkable, how much greater the killing of the sun. Here, Jesus' lament in Matthew 19, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. John writes in the first chapter of his gospel, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, Have you not read this scripture in verse 10? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. In the Greek, the Lord's doing that's intentionally fronted and highlighted. This was from the Lord. This, this stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. If we were using italics or bold, we would expect the Lord's doing to ha- have one of those. This is the Lord's doing. It's from God. The analogy of the parable is not pure, for the son rejected and cast out of the vineyard, killed and cast out of the vineyard, becomes the cornerstone or the capstone of a a whole new structure. And you can almost imagine, because the temple, remember, was being built from 20 B.C. to 64 A.D., and so we can almost imagine the stones still being brought in. And you can almost, and this, is, this comes from Psalm 118, so I'm not, I'm not trying to say to rip it out of context, but to perhaps think, in the context of the temple still being beat, be built, that Jesus says, "The stone that the builders rejected, this one has become the chief stone, the stone of the most importance. And it's the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous. They're seeking to arrest Jesus, but they fear the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. They knew exactly what he was saying. And what they'll end up doing is they'll end up sending more people to try and trap him in his words, and that's where we'll get to in the next couple weeks. But for now, some reflections. First, there's no neutral ground. The Pharisees, or not, not the Pharisees, but the, the, the rulers and the elders, the, the, these high priests, they had a choice. They could accept or they could reject. Jesus came, there was not a third option. Does John baptize with authority from heaven or from man? Does the Son of God, the Son of Man, does he come with authority from God or authority from man, there is no neutral ground. It's either one or the other. And we find ourselves in the same pattern. Either we will face rejection from God, or we'll face rejection from man. If we side with God, there is rejection from the world. And if we side with the world, there is rejection from God. Rejection from the world is a high price to pay. People will decide for you your motives for rejecting the world. They'll say you're spiteful, you hate, you're self-righteous. Rejection from God is a higher price to pay, I think. Jesus is the Son of God who reigns forever. The stone that was rejected has become the cornerstone. And the glorious thing is that if we come to him, And say, Lord, not my will, but yours. Not my way, but yours. Not my glory, but yours. He will always accept you. Stand firm, then. In a letter, ancient letter of Ignatius, uh, Ignatius of Antioch, writes to Polycarp, who would soon face the death for his allegiance to Christ, he writes this. He says, stand firm as does an anvil which is beaten. It is the part of a noble athlete to be wounded and yet to conquer. And especially we ought to bear all things for the sake of God, that he also may bear with us. It is better to be accepted by God and rejected by men. Hebrews says in chapter 13, Let us go to him, outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Our king was rejected by this world system. Why would we expect better treatment ourselves? Rather, we turn to Christ. Our cornerstone, our rock, and I redeem her. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, grant us the courage. Grant us the wisdom to place ourselves on the side of our King the Lord Jesus Christ, even when this means rejection. The ways of God are not our ways, but may this always be said about us, O King, that when it comes down to the wire, we are found trusting in you.